All right. Well, today we are talking about the next most exciting topic after the resurrection, church government. Uh, Next year when we plan this around Easter, we'll try to find a topic that pops a little more in theological equipping. Uh, We're going to be talking about church government today, and it's something that I'm actually kind of excited to teach just because it's something that many of you have probably never heard a lesson on. Right? So a lot of these topics we go over in theological equipping, you might have talked about or thought about or read a book about, but uh, you probably have not heard any, at least not very many, lessons on church government and how a church should be run and church governing structure. Now, before we begin, I noticed a little typo in your notes, so I want to mention that to you so you can add that there. If you look under the third section where it says church government and then Episcopalian, underneath Catholicism, in between the words archbishop archbishops and priests, there should be the word bishops. For some reason, I left that off there. I don't know why. Uh, Just a lot to do in getting ready for Easter. But in between priests and archbishops, you want to put the word bishops there under the uh, Catholicism thing. We'll talk about that in a second. So let's talk about church government, what we're talking about today. So when you talk about church government, uh, you talk about two things mainly. One is church officers. Who helps run the church? Who helps make decisions? Who helps guard sound doctrine? These kind of things. You talk about church officers. We're going to have a whole separate lesson on that. So what is an apostle? What is a deacon? What is an elder or pastor? We're going to have a whole different lesson on that, so I'm not going to touch on that much today. You also talk about, and this is the second thing and the main focus of our talk this morning, church governing structure. That's what you talk about, church governing structure. Now, we've said this as we're studying ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, but I want to say it again. Ecclesiology is like stretching. You don't notice it until something tears, okay? So ecclesiology is not the most important of all the different doctrines, but it's one of those ones that ends up affecting everything else. So you want to get your ecclesiology right, or it can affect a bunch of other things negatively. But today, we're going to be talking about church governing structure. How has the Bible asked us to govern the church? You might not even know that this is something that the Bible actually addresses and uh, talks about and gives us examples of, but that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, before we do, I need to give you some Greek words. I'm going to give you some Greek words that you need to know. Impress your friends. Okay? Impress your friends later on this week. A few of these. Let me give you these. The first one is the word apostolos in Greek. Apostolos, that's where we get our word apostle. An apostle just means one who's sent out, but in the Bible it means one who's sent out by Christ. Capital, big A, apostle. I can write scripture. You have to do what I say. Big time apostle. Okay? We'll talk more about that when we talk about uh, church officers. The next is the word poimain. Poimain. Okay? That's where we get the word shepherd or pastor. What's interesting is the verbal form of that word, I believe, uh, only occurs one time in talking about pastoral leadership in the New Testament, and yet that's the term we most often use in referring to pastors. Why are they called pastors? Because they have a flock, and then they shepherd the flock. That's where the the phrase comes from, poimen. Next, a diakonos. What do you think that is, even if you didn't know Greek? It's a deacon, all right? Diakonos, or for a woman, a diakonisa, okay? A diakonos is uh, is a deacon. Uh, or minister. The word can also mean minister. The idea of a diakonos is really just someone who's a servant. So if you were to wait tables, you would be a diakonos. If you were like a nurse in the first century, like we think of as a medical nurse today, so you help the sick, you would be a uh, a diakonos. Uh, I like to joke that when I worked at Chili's, I was a Chili's deacon because I waited tables, you see, and so that's what a, a deacon is. We'll talk more about that again with church officers. A presbyteros is where we get the word elder, okay? Presbyteros. The, the word literally means an old man, But the idea is not that they have to all be physically old, right? Paul talks to Timothy and says, don't let them despise you because of your youth. The idea is that they need to be mature spiritually. They need to be spiritually old, if you want to say it that way, and that's the idea of an elder. And then lastly, episkopos. Episkopos, that word means overseer. Skopos means to see, like a scope, 
right? That's uh, the scope. And then epi is above, so it's one who sees over. It's an overseer, and sometimes it is translated as bishop. Now, the reason you need to know these terms is because some of these terms are used in describing different modes of church government, and so that's why you need to know those. Now, before we get into church government, let me, let me say this as well. Denominations, Christian denominations, are typically named after what makes them different than other Orthodox Christians, Okay. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science Movement, uh, Scientology, these kind of things are not denominations. They're cults, right? They have nothing to do with Orthodox Christianity. But within Orthodox Christianity, you have to have a way of describing what makes some Christians different from other Christians. And so we use these denominational labels to do that. So there is no denomination called the Resurrectionians, because if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not a Christian. There is no denomination called the Trinitarians because all Christians that are true Christians are Trinitarian. And so churches in different denominations typically gain their denominational name by what makes them different than other Christians. Baptist because you baptize someone who is a believer or uh, Episcopalian because you have a church government that's Episcopalian, we'll talk about in a second. Or Presbyterian, because you have a church government that is, wait for it, Presbyterian, we'll talk about that in just a second. Or Methodist, because John and Charles Wesley, the guys that founded the Methodist church, were very methodical. They pray on certain days, fast on certain days, and their opponents said, those Methodists with all their methods, and that's just the name that sticks, okay? And so, uh, and so keep that in mind as we go over some different forms of church government. So let's go over the first one. The first type of church governing structure that you may or may not know about is called Episcopalian, okay? Episcopalian. What Greek word that we just went over is in that name? Episkopos, okay? Episkopos, an overseer or a bishop. This type of church government has different levels and different layers of episkopoi, of bishops, of uh, overseers, and that's why it's called that, okay? So here's what the main thing you need to know about an Episcopalian form of church government is simply this individuals have authority over multiple churches. Let me say that again. Individuals have authority over multiple churches within an Episcopalian system of church government. Everybody with me? Now, I know you probably cannot see all of this from back there, but here's what you can see, some circles. So let me explain what those circles are so you can see this type of church government. So within an Episcopalian system, these C's stands for congregations or churches. It works for either one, which is great. So these C's, these are different churches. And over the churches you have, let's start with Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, you have what's known as a priest, okay? An unfortunate term because the Bible will call all Christians priests, but a pastor in Roman Catholicism is called a priest. And you have a priest over each of those individual churches. But it doesn't stop there. It gets better, okay? Above the priests of a certain region, you have what is called a bishop, an episkopos. That's why it's called Episcopalian, okay? So Episcopalian doesn't mean you're the denomination Episcopalian, although they are Episcopalian in their government. It is any type of church governing structure where you have individuals that are over multiple congregations, okay? So you have the congregations. Above them, you have the priest. Above them, you have bishops. Above them, you have archbishops. Whoa, okay? That's serious. If you're an archbishop, you're a major player, Okay? Above the archbishops, you have what is known as the College of Cardinals in Rome, which are themselves these leaders of the church. They're kind of the uh, advisory board to the pope. And then at the top, you have the daddy. That's what pope means, the papa. You have, uh, you have the uh, pope there at the top. But here's what you need to understand. In an Episcopalian form of church government, you, you see this hierarchy. 
It's like, it's like the military or something, right? So you have these different guys over groups, and then you have guys over them, and then guys over them, and then at the top you have a five-star general and then the president or whatever at the top. That's what you have with an Episcopalian form of church government. So in Roman Catholicism, at the top you have the pope, followed by cardinals, followed by archbishops, followed by bishops, followed by priests, and then at the bottom you have the congregation, okay? Or a great example of this form of church government is the Anglican church. What is the Anglican church? Church of England, okay? I actually think it's really funny. Anytime people are in America and they say that they're Anglican, I'm like, okay, you traitors, you still belong to the Church of England. Uh, yes, it, uh, it comes out of King Henry VIII. He wanted his divorce from Catherine of Aragon, and the church would not grant it because Roman Catholicism does not recognize divorce, and therefore he's like, fine, forget you, we'll just start our own church. And, uh, and you get the birth of Anglicanism in, uh, in England, right? In the UK, you have the birth of, uh, of Anglicanism. And so, uh, and so you have this hierarchy uh, within the Anglican church as well. So you also have this in the United States. In the United States, Anglicanism is typically called Episcopalianism. Why is it not called Anglican? Because we are Americans. Amen, right? That's why it's called that. It's called the Episcopalian Church. Same kind of thing, very similar doctrine, uh, but uh, they didn't want to call themselves the Church of England. By the way, in the Constitution, where it talks about uh, the idea of separation of church and state, although that phrase is not used, the idea is not that you can't pray in a public school or all the things people make it today. The idea is that, the, 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 that America will not have a state-sponsored church. That's the idea, like they did at the Church of England. Right? The founding fathers, when they came over here, they didn't want it to be like England. In England, you have an official church. The official church is Anglicanism, the Church of England. It used to be illegal to not go to church on Sunday uh, in England. In other countries, you have an official church. So whether it's an official Lutheran church in Germany or whatever it is, but in the United States, you don't have an official state church uh, like you do in Anglicanism. Now, let's talk about the uh, structure here of Anglicanism and give you some words you may or may not have heard before. At the top... In Anglicanism or Episcopalianism, at the top of Anglicanism specifically, you have who? The queen. God save the queen, right? She is a type of leader over the church because there is not a separation of church and state within this system like there is in the United States, okay? This is one of the things that the Puritans were very uncomfortable about. They did not want to say that there was this head of the church being the queen because Christ is the head of the church. Now, I think they misunderstood what the Anglicans are trying to say, but at the top you have the queen. Underneath her, you have what is known, listen to how, uh, sh you know, Shakespearean this sounds, the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? You have the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's kind of the first among equals. He's more of a figurehead and a spokesperson uh, for the church. Underneath him, you have what is known as an archbishop, which we just mentioned, an archbishop. An archbishop is over other bishops, okay? He's over other bishops in a particular region. How do you keep up with all these bishops? Well, they need somebody to report to, and they have an archbishop. Below him, you have bishops. Bishops are over several churches in what is called a diocese. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase diocese. A diocese is a region that's overseen by a bishop, okay? Underneath the bishop, you have what is known as a rector, okay? A rector. A rector is the term in Anglicanism for a pastor, okay? Pastors are rectors, and the rector typically has kind of a, uh, a robin to his batman, he typically has kind of this sidekick pastor, and that guy is called a vicar. What does the term vicarious mean? You ever use the phrase vicarious? What is it? Yes, it's where something stands in for something else, okay? Jesus is our vicar. He, is, uh, he made vicarious atonement. He stood in our place. The idea is the vicar is called that because he stands in for the rector. When the rector's sick, 
or the rector's got stuff going on. There's the vicar, okay? And they are, uh, they are uh, the ones that help run a church within this Episcopal or uh, Anglican system here. And then lastly, you have the congregation at the bottom, okay? Do you see how many different levels of hierarchy there are? By the way, a congregation and people that live within that area is called a parish, if you've ever heard the phrase parish. Sometimes when people find out I'm a pastor, they say things like this, how many parishioners do you have? And I know that they're coming from a particular background of church. If you go to Louisiana, the great state of Louisiana, here in Texas, we call them counties. What do they call them in Louisiana? They call them parishes. Why do they call them parishes? Well, before the United States owned Louisiana and the Louisiana Purchase, it was owned by the French, and the French are Roman Catholic, and that's why they are called parishes even to this day, okay? But that's the idea. The big thing that you need to know is that there's hierarchy, multiple levels of hierarchy, over multiple churches, okay? So let's talk about some things to know about this system of government. Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, Greek Orthodoxy, and some Methodists are examples of this type of church government, okay? So if you see one of those groups, they probably have some structure that is similar to this and that they have some type of hierarchy, okay? Number two, this form of government assumes that the office of overseer is bishop is distinct from that of pastor or elder, okay? I would contend that a pastor, a poimen, an elder, a presbyteros, and a bishop slash overseer, an episkopos, are actually all the same office. Those are different words referring to the same office. And again, we'll talk more about that when we talk about church government. But if you are episcopal, you believe that those are different offices. You believe that a bishop is different than a pastor, okay? If you're like us, you believe a bishop and a pastor are the same thing, which means I'd like for you to start calling me bishop. I'm kidding. Okay. Number three. This is the most common form of church government in the early and medieval church. So this is the, the form of government you're going to see in three-fourths of church history. Number four, in this system, one person can have authority over multiple churches. That's the big weird thing, okay? Notice that who right now stands above Parkway other than the Bible and God? No organization, Nobody gets to tell us what to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. Jesus tells me what to do. The Bible tells me what to do. We make decisions as elders, but there's not like this person we report to, right? So like Wade or Steve or Jeff or whoever, we don't have to report to some sort of bishop and say, hey, we're going to teach through Romans, and they say, go for it. But in Episcopalianism, you have this hierarchy, okay? Now listen to this next point. This is interesting. Corruption can happen quickly from the top down. Within this structure, there's some good things about it, but there's a, one really bad thing, and it's if something becomes corrupt up here the whole thing gets corrupted really quickly, okay? Let's say you have several bishops that get together and decide, okay, we're going to affirm homosexuality now and say that that's a biblical position. What do you do if you're a pastor underneath their authority and you disagree? You lose your job, okay? So corruption can happen from the top down pretty quickly. A good thing about this system is being ordained has higher requirements in this form of church government, okay? In this form of church government, if you want to be an ordained minister, you typically have to meet a certain level of, uh, of education. You have to pass uh, different examinations and theological boards and these kind of things to make sure that you know your stuff. Number seven, lay people are far removed from decisions. In this system, the lay people of the church are far removed from decisions, okay? If the pope decides something, the cardinals decide something, some bishops to get, get together at a council or whatever, you don't typically have a representative except for your local priest or bishop, okay, that can go on your behalf. A good thing about this system, number eight, this form of government does show more church unity. It does show more church unity. Schism is sin. To divide from a church for just preferences 
is sinful. Paul constantly has to tell us unity, 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 unity. So for all the faults Roman Catholicism has, here's something that they do better than Protestants. They're unified, okay? They're unified, and they have one church. Number nine, one of the reasons that the office of bishop was exalted in the early church is because it was a way to quickly fight heresy and schism. One of the things and one of the reasons why this form of church government popped up pretty early and quickly was because they needed a way to fight heretics. When the early church is going on, you don't want it to drift into heresy. We don't have time to call these things. Let's put someone in power who's really smart and really knows the Bible, and he will help protect us from schism and heresy. And then number 10, this is really important, so pay attention to this one. In Roman Catholicism, the succession of bishops is what constitutes the church, okay? Part of the debate in the Reformation is this question, what is the church? What is the church? Jesus only has one church. You can't belong to a separate church. You can't belong to another church. That's called a cult. Jesus promises that the gates of Hades will never overcome his church. So what is that church? In Roman Catholicism, it is the laying on of hands and ordaining of bishops, that's what constitutes the church, okay? So one bishop ordains another bishop. A generation goes by, he ordains another bishop. And he, a generation goes by, he ordains another bishop. And there's this succession of ordaining bishops going all the way back to the time of the apostles. And they will say that's what constitutes the church. The reformers said, no, what, constitu what constitutes the church is correct doctrine. Are you preaching the message of the apostles? Are you preaching the message of the early church? Okay? The reformers are fine appealing to guys in Roman Catholicism. They're fine appealing to Anselm. They're fine appealing to Aquinas. They're fine doing that, but they're appealing to doctrine. So you'll have to ask this question. What is the church? Is it institutional, like in Roman Catholicism, or is it more doctrinal, like in Protestantism, which is what I would hold? Okay? Everybody good? This is a lot of random, heady facts. See? You didn't know this stuff. Now you're thinking, ah, Louisiana. I'm going to tell my friends that they were Catholic, and that's why they're called parishes. Let's keep going. Number two, another type of church government, another type of church governing structure is what is known as Presbyterian, okay? Presbyterian. You've probably heard that before. This comes from what Greek word that we learned? Presbyteros, which is the term for elder, okay? Which is the term for uh, elder. Now, here's what you need to know about this. In an Episcopalian system, who has authority over multiple churches? Individuals right? Bishops. Yeah, a bishop's an individual or an archbishop's an individual. Individuals have authority over multiple churches. Here's what you need to know about Presbyterianism. Here's the big thing, is that groups of people have authority over multiple churches. Groups of people have authority over multiple churches, okay? So an Episcopalian system in Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy or whatever it is, individuals have authority over multiple churches. In a Presbyterian system, groups of people have authority over multiple churches. Now, that's what you can kind of see here on my tiny diagram. Notice that you have the congregations, the churches, and above them they have a plurality of elders. Notice the multiple E's there for elder. There's a plurality. Well, some of those get together at a higher level, and then some of those get together at a higher level, but what you have is you have groups of elders over multiple churches. So we have a group of elders here at Parkway, but it's just over Parkway, and in a Presbyterian or reform system, you have groups of elders over multiple churches, okay? So when elders get together over one church, that is called a session, when they then get together with more elders from other churches over a region, that's called a presbytery. And then when they all get together at the highest level, that is called a general assembly, if you're talking about Presbyterianism. If you are talking about what's known as the Reformed Church. Now, when we say that we're Reformed, we're talking about doctrine. There's a denomination, though, called the Reformed Church. They do the same thing, although this is called a consistory. This is called a classis, and this is called a synod. Just different names for basically the same thing. But here's what you need to know. 
What you have in this form of church government is you have multiple elders that then get together with multiple elders that then get together with multiple elders and they decide things for the entire denomination. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? Okay. Things to know about this system of church government, okay? Presbyterian, Reformed, and some Lutheran churches are examples of this type of government, okay? So if you drive past one of those churches and you're like, I wonder how they're governed, probably like this or something similar, okay? Church politics and decisions happen pretty slowly. If we need to change something in the church, we've got to send our delegates to a group, and they've got to send their delegates to a bigger group, and they've got to make decisions, and it's got to come back down and trickle back down, and so sometimes decisions happen uh, pretty slowly. In this system, groups of elders have authority over multiple churches, okay? They have authority over multiple churches. Lay people are not as removed from this system as they are in Episcopalianism, but they are still a bit removed. Notice that if you're a lay person down here, there are several levels of authority. How is your voice heard? Your voice is only heard if you're one of your local elders can go here and then can go here, okay? And so uh, it's hard to have a say much with a congregation uh, in that type of church government. Now, corruption can happen pretty quickly. So with Episcopalianism, I said it can happen quickly. Here I'm saying it can happen pretty quickly. You have the same kind of problem, okay? So, for example, there are different types of Presbyterians. The Presbyterian Church of America, PCA, and the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, they're pretty solid doctrinally. The Presbyterian Church United States of America, PCUSA, is crazy liberal. And I mean that not just the political sense, I mean that in the theological sense, okay? Where you have, uh, sing, I mean, the church across the street is uh, PCUSA, and they'll sing songs in their worship service about your gay partner and the environment and these kind of things. And so corruption... It happens up here, trickles down into these other churches pretty quickly, okay? Next, a good thing about this system, being ordained has higher requirements in this form of church government, okay? Again, this, to be ordained because you're part of a larger system, it typically is more requirements. You have to meet a certain level of education. You have to pass theological boards. You, again, have to know your stuff, okay? Number seven, this form of church government became very popular during the time of the Reformation. So in most of church history, you have this Episcopalian form, and then you get this more Presbyterian and Reformed system at the uh, Reformation, hence the term Reformed. And then number eight. Now, this one's important and kind of an indictment on churches like us. This form of government does show more church unity than congregationalism, okay? Part of the benefits of these systems is you know that you belong to other churches. Even if you've never met them, you're all working towards the same mission, you're sharing finances, you're supporting missionaries, you're doing all those kind of things, so it shows a certain level of church unity, okay? Shows a certain level of church unity. So, Episcopalian, who has authority over multiple churches? Individuals. I heard somebody, individuals. He's risen indeed, right? Individuals. Uh, in this form of government, Presbyterian, who has authority over multiple churches? Groups, that's right. Elders, right, that come together in a session, Presbyterian General Assembly, etc. Now, let me show you how simple the next one is. You guys are really going to enjoy this one. So, these ones are all fancy and crazy. I'm going to erase my... Uh... By the way, did y'all notice that I put the cardinals in red? That's for you. For those of you paying attention, that's for you. Okay, so here is going to be congregationalism. Now, watch how much simpler this is. This is the church, and here are your elders. Are these E's? Wow. There we go. Okay. That is congregationalism, okay? Much, much simpler. What congregationalism is, is it's, a organiza it's an organizational structure that would say there is no authority over the local church 
other than the local elders. Yes, the Bible and Jesus. Everybody holds that. Those are givens. There's no other earthly authority over the local church other than the local church elders. So it's a much simpler system, but that is congregationalism. Now, that's not to be confused. Sometimes when people use the term congregationalism, they mean that the congregation makes all the decisions in the church, right? That the church votes on everything. Maybe you belong to a church that way. But the problem with that is that the church is not American. A church vote is called a church split. You put forward your boy, someone else puts forward their boy, it causes all this division, and everybody does what is right in their own eyes, to quote judges. Or, I mean, uh, yeah, to quote judges. So, instead, when we say congregationalism, what we mean is that there's no church authority, no ecclesiastical authority over the local church, okay? Over the local church. Now, some things you need to know about this form of government. By the way, this is the form of government we have here at Parkway. It's the one that I think to be most biblical. There are strengths and weaknesses, though, to it. Let me give you a few of these. First, things to know. Baptist, Congregationalists, and most non-denominational churches, a lot of, uh, you know, charismatic churches are this way as well, uh, are a good example of this type of government, okay? Of this type of government. Number two, deacons are not an authoritative body, but rather a serving body to assist the elders, Again, I won't go into that because we're going to talk more about that when we get into church officers, but I want to mention that here. Number three, cooperative programs and voluntary associations are encouraged, but they do not have authority over over local churches. So let's say your church belongs to Acts 29, your church belongs to Nine Marks, your church belongs to the SBC, your church belongs to one of these other groups. Those groups do not have authority over you. They can give you suggestions. You can voluntarily leave those organizations if you want to, and they don't get to fire you. They don't get to take your property. They don't get to get rid of your pastor. And so there's still a way to have unity without having this authority that's over you. It's a voluntary cooperation. So let's say we wanted to partner with some other good churches in McKinney. We might do that, but it's voluntary. It's not because we're going to say, you know, dear Christ Redeemer or dear the Parks Church, you have authority over us. We'll say, dear Christ Redeemer or dear the Parks Church, we want to work with you, but we are still our own autonomous bodies, okay? Number four, the people can be more involved in knowing what's going on in the church. Why? Because look, you don't have such a big gap. You have a problem, you have a concern, call a pastor, call an elder, email us, let us know. We're happy to chat with you. You don't have to go to some, you know, archbishop that's over, uh, you know, Dallas, the whole DFW area to have your voice heard that you can chat with your, uh, your local elders there, okay? The downside, one of the downsides to this uh, form of church government is that ordination doesn't mean very much. A church can just say, here's a piece of paper, I hereby ordain you. They don't have to see if you know your stuff, they don't have to test you, they don't have to grill you, you don't have to meet a certain level of education, and so ordination does not mean very much within this system typically, okay? There is less, and here's another downside, there's often less accountability in this type of governing structure, okay? So let's say you belong to one of these other systems, you're in here and your church starts to drift, If your denomination's solid, these guys will rebuke you and make you change. That's a good thing. That helps hold you accountable. You don't have that kind of accountability uh, with this system. It's kind of a give and take. Corruption happens faster here, but also rebuke happens and accountability happens here. Here, corruption happens slower, but also there's no accountability. Who is accountable? If we start drifting, you know who's only accountable? You, the congregation. The way to keep your church from drifting is to have a biblically literate laity. That's the way to keep your church from, from drifting. Okay. Next, which I just said, actually, I didn't even mean to say this. Number seven, the laity can help hold the leadership accountable to avoid doctrinal drift. Number eight, decisions can be made quickly. Okay, that's a huge benefit. If we're trying to figure out something that's going on, there's some social issue, there's something doctrinally we're wrestling through, it takes 
an elder meeting or maybe a few elder meetings as we wrestle through it, pray through it, search the scriptures, etc. It doesn't take, we don't have to wait till next year's session to get together so that we can finally decide things for the church. So decisions can happen uh, quickly there. Number nine, this governing structure doesn't show as much unity among other churches as the other two systems. Okay, so that's a downside. So if you have this type of church government, which I think is right, you still have to be willing and open to chat with other churches, help other churches, identify with other churches, these kind of things, so that you can show unity, okay? In the other systems, unity is built in. You're unified with other churches because you believe the same things. You're unified by your doctrine. If you're Episcopalian, you're linked to a bunch of other Episcopalian churches. If you're Anglican, you're linked to what's called the Anglican Communion, all the Anglicans around the world. If you're Catholic, you're linked to all Catholics of all time and all around the world. And so the unity is built in. In this system, though, in congregationalism, you have to work for the unity. You have to fight for the unity. And then number 10, personally, I believe that this is the form of church government you see in the Bible. You have local congregations with local elders, notice that's in the plural, that work with other churches while not being subordinate to their authority. The first church council, what is the first church council? Who knows the very first church council in church history? Say it it loudly. Still louder. Yell it. No? Trent came in the 1500s? Jerusalem. There it is. The Jerusalem Church Council. The first church council in church history is actually recorded in the book of Acts. It's in Acts 15. And what are they trying to figure out at the Jerusalem Council? They're trying to figure out, do Gentiles who get saved, have to follow these marks of Judaism. That might sound familiar to you from like the book of Romans and Ephesians and Galatians. That's the big issue going on in the New Testament. What do we do with Gentiles and Jews? How do we fit these two groups together? And uh, what happens in, uh, in Acts is the apostles go and elders and such go from different churches. So notice that they're all coming together to make decisions. If you're Episcopalian, or you're Presbyterian, what you'll say is the fact that they're all going to this meeting shows that there's hierarchy over multiple churches. The refutation of that is it's the apostles, though, who are deciding. The apostles are deciding what's going on because they're the direct spokesman from God, and then all the churches are following the apostles. But everybody agrees with that. Whether you're Congregational or Episcopalian or Presbyterian, everyone agrees the church is founded on, quote, the prophets and the apostles. And so uh, I don't know that that's a real strong argument to say that someone can have authority over multiple churches just because churches in the book of Acts work together to get a decision from the apostles, if that makes sense. Okay, now, time to make fun of some stuff. Whoo, that was a lot. Everybody take a big breath. Okay, we're having fun. Church government, he's risen indeed. Let's keep going. Other less common forms of church government. Some churches have no government at all, okay? They will sometimes say, the Spirit will lead us. The Holy Spirit will lead us, to which I respond, the Spirit has led us, and guess what he's told you in the Bible? That you need elders, and you need them in the plural, and they need to help guide the church, okay? So it can sound really spiritual to say, we don't need any any government in our church. We'll just go where the Spirit leads. Well, how do you know where the Spirit leads? Through his word, and his word is interpreted by those who are, quote, able to teach, those who are, uh, meet those requirements of elders. But you have that, the biggest place you see that, you see that in certain uh, kind of standoffish groups like the Quakers, if you've ever heard the Quakers, they make excellent oatmeal, but they kind of have this no church government kind of, uh, kind of rule. You see this in some charismatic churches. It sounds very spiritual, but it actually ends up devolving into chaos, okay? Other churches have what is called a single pastor model or a single elder model. Perhaps that's how you grew up, right? You probably went to a church where if you grew up non-denominational, if you grew up Baptist, if you grew up uh, one of these kind of groups, you probably went to a church where there was really one pastor 
and he was kind of the guy. He did all the preaching, he did all the shepherding, he did all the leading. Uh, there was just kind of one elder, and so that is what's known as a single elder model or a single pastor model. We'll argue when we get to church officers that uh, the Bible, every time it refers to elders, always refers to them in the plural for a reason, okay? Perhaps you went to a church that was ruled by deacons, okay? First church I pastored was one of these models that I would consider not to be as biblical, where I was the only pastor, I was the only elder, and we had a board of deacons, but the deacons didn't do deacon stuff. They didn't, you know, do finances and administration and feeding the poor and visiting the sick. They were in charge of the church, and I, as the pastor, did all the deacon stuff. I was doing all the hospital visits, and I was going to help people in their home, and I was doing all these kind of things, and so it was kind of a reversal uh, of what was supposed to be happening, okay? Number four, you see this in some churches, rule by pure democracy, Rule by pure democracy. Whoever can be, to quote our uh, former pastor Jerry Hallbrook, whoever can be the best hallway com campaigner is the one who gets their way. Whoever can be the best hallway campaigner is the one that gets their way because everything is voted on by the people. Okay? Some churches, and you especially see this more in the modern era, you have rule by a corporate board. Okay? You have rule by a corporate board where it's not elders meeting the requirements of elders. You have a corporate board. They just say, listen, the, the church is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit organization. So let's take guys that are excellent in business. Do they know the Bible? Doesn't matter. Let's take guys that crush it in industry. Are they godly? Doesn't matter. They're obviously good leaders. These kind of churches like to talk a lot about leadership and not so much about the Bible. And they're led by a corporate board. Okay? And then uh, lastly, this is something that especially has popped up in the recent era, what are known as multi-site churches, okay, multi-site churches. Uh, and a multi-site church is where instead of planting an autonomous church in congregationalism, you have satellite campuses that are linked into your main campus. So they might have their own pastors, they might have their own worship team, they might have that, but the pastor, kind of the guy that stands above the other elders, despite the fact that all the elders are supposed to be equal, gets streamed in via video service or visiting the campuses or whatever it might be, and that's what's known as a multi-site church. Now, that doesn't mean those things are wrong in and of themselves, but you need to know the problem with that is that they're neither one assembly, right? Because the word church means, ecclesia means assembly. How can you be one assembly in five different cities miles and miles apart from each other? So they're not one, one congregation, they're not one ecclesia, they're not one church, but at the same time, they refuse to call themselves Presbyterian, which is really what they are where multiple elders have authority over multiple congregations. Now, we have a tendency to think multi-site churches are kind of a new thing, kind of a modern phenomenon, but that's because we fail to study church history. The Reformers dealt with this issue. One of the things the Reformers had to think through was, should one guy be able to be a pastor at multiple locations? And the Reformers said no. They called them pluralities. The Reformers said no. You, why? And here's why. This is important. You cannot adequately shepherd multiple congregations so everyone just is watered down. Nobody's really getting discipled because there's too many people for just a few pastors to try to shepherd that many people. And so we should uh, study church history on, uh, on that issue, okay? Doesn't mean those things are necessarily wrong. I want, let me give a clarifier here. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, he's writing to multiple assemblies. He's writing to multiple what we think of as churches that are meeting in people's homes. So the word church doesn't always mean just one assembly. We, we get too uh, wooden with that sometimes. Uh, but, uh, so that doesn't necessarily mean multi-site churches are wrong or bad. They can just tend to be less faithful than the traditional model. Okay? Everybody good? All right. Now we get into do something fun. 
just to, to keep you awake. I added this just to make it interesting because I know this lesson is a little dry. It's a little church polity-ish, and then we're going to answer some questions and hopefully even get out a little bit early because it's Easter. Okay, where did the Pope come from? Huh? Who wants to know? We're talking about church government. We're talking about church governing structures. Where does the Pope come from? When we talk about church government, the Pope is the biggest figure in church history when it comes to governing structures. So I think it would be helpful for us as Protestants to see where uh, the idea of the Pope came from. Let me just put my cards on the table. I'm a Protestant. I'm a Reformed Protestant. I'm a Reformed Protestant that's Baptist, okay? I think the, the, the institution of the Pope is the worst, okay? I have to think that because, uh, you know, sola fide and sola scriptura and all these kind of things. But I think it's interesting, so I want to tell you where the idea of the Pope came from. What you have in the early church is you have these churches and you have bishops like we talked about over these different churches, okay? But eventually what you'll see over time is that the bishop of Rome starts to gain preeminence, starts to gain primacy over the other bishops. So let's talk about the steps that made this happen. Here we go. From 254 to 256 AD, there was a debate between two bishops, okay? Two early church leaders. One guy's name was Cyprian. He was the bishop of Carthage. And there was another bishop named Stephen. He was the bishop of Rome. Now, they were debating whether or not some churches that broke away from Catholicism, churches led by a guy named Novation, were truly churches. Cyprian said no, because the people in those churches had not been baptized by Catholic bishops, but Stephen said yes, because those churches still held to doctrinal orthodoxy. Let me summarize. I just gave you a bunch of info. Let me summarize what's going on. In the early church, there were some churches, a group of churches, that broke away from Roman Catholicism, okay? The question is, are they Christians? Are they saved? There is only one church. You can't break away from the church. You can't have schism. So are they saved? Cyprian says, no, they have to come back to mother church, okay? They have to be uh, baptized by Catholic bishops. And Stephen is going to say, no, they don't have to be baptized again or baptized by Catholic bishops or whatever it is because they still held to Orthodox Christian positions. Now, here's why this is important. That same debate will be had in the Reformation. Is the church institutional and linked to Roman Catholicism? Or is it doctrinal? Notice that in the 200s, this same debate is already going on within Roman Catholicism. Okay, that same debate's going on within Roman Catholicism. Now, let's say you're Stephen, the Bishop of Rome, and you're fighting this guy, Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage. How do you determine who's right? How do you determine who's right? You get step two. Stephen, the Bishop of Rome, appealed to Matthew 16 to make the claim that the Bishop of Rome, like himself, had authority over other bishops because Peter was the church leader in Rome. So imagine that I'm the bishop in Rome, and you're the bishop of Carthage, and we're debating about some area of the Bible. I'm going to say to you, I win. And you say, how do you win? And I say, because I belong to Rome. And Rome is linked to Peter, and Peter is the one uh, on whom the church is built. Matthew 16, 13 through 19 says this, now, when Jesus came to the, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, Petros is the, his name in Greek, by the way. Kepha is his Aramaic name. Those both mean rock. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, bar Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Petros, you are Peter. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I shall give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay? So what you have is you've got Cyprian fighting Stephen, and Stephen says, I win because I belong to Rome. And guess what? Jesus told Peter, who belongs to Rome, that he is super great, and so now I've beaten you in the decision. Okay? That's what's going on. That's what's going on here in this text. Next, Rome continues to grow in ascendancy. Peter and Paul are seen as the most influential apostles. Let me stop and go back just for something interesting. You guys ever heard like a joke where somebody dies and goes to heaven and they say that St. Peter is standing at the gates? Why is it that it's St. Peter that's standing at the gates? Because he has the keys to the kingdom, which I just said here. It comes out of Roman Catholicism, okay? Number three, Peter and Paul are seen as the most influential apostles because they're linked to Rome. So Rome starts to grow in ascendancy. It starts to grow in importance because Peter ruled in Rome, and it was thought that Paul was beheaded in Rome. See, we don't know. We're studying Romans. We don't know if Paul ever made it to Spain like he wanted to. Some evidence says yes, some says no, but what you start to see is that Rome starts to grow in power. So if you're confused, here's all you have to remember. You have a bunch of bishops in the early church, but Rome starts to become elevated, starts to become higher up, okay? Rome has a lot of money. They have a huge population. It's the eternal city. It's the most important city in the world, okay? Over time, bishops in major cities began gaining more power and influence than other bishops. Here were the five major centers in early Christianity, okay? Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople, and, drumroll, Rome. Rome was the largest and wealthiest of all those cities, okay? Where does Rome get exalted officially in church history? Well, according to the Council of Constantinople. What was that about? Who knows what the Council of Constantinople was about? Anybody? This is extra credit. This is extra credit. This one's tricky. The Council of Nicaea was in 325, and that was to affirm Jesus' full eternal deity. The Council of Constantinople was in 381. That was to affirm Jesus' true humanity. The Council of Ephesus in 431 was to affirm that Jesus is just one person. And then uh, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 was to affirm that Jesus, though he is one person, has two distinct natures and two distinct wills. Okay? But according to the Council of Constantinople, listen to this phrase, the Bishop of Constantinople shall have the prerogative primacy of honor after the Bishop of Rome. So the order goes Rome, then Constantinople, which will be a major player in Greek Orthodoxy, then the other three, then the other three, okay? Everybody with me so far? Here's all you have to remember. Rome keeps getting more and more important, okay? Bishops are appealing to Peter being the rock in Rome. Rome has a bunch of money. Rome has a bunch of people. If you're a pastor in Cut and Shoot, Texas, or you're a pastor in New York City, who has more influence? New York City, right? New York City has more influence. So Rome has a bunch of money. Rome has a bunch of power. But now you have an official church decree saying Rome is more important than these other groups. Rome is more important than that. Well, what, another thing that really kicked the movement off was a bishop named Leo, Leo I. Now listen to this guy. You want a man's man? You want to talk about a cool guy in church history? Leo, listen to what he did. In 452, a bishop named Leo was sent as the Roman emperor's ambassador to discuss terms with Attila the Hun as he was embarking on Rome. So here you see a bishop in the line of Peter with imperial authority trying to persuade the most evil villain alive to spare people, and Leo gained a reputation for this. So the Roman emperor's like, oh man, Attila the Hun. Everybody know who Attila the Hun is? It's who they like fight in Mulan or something? Uh, And so anyway, he's this bad guy. I mean, he's this murderer. He called himself the scourge of God. They used to wear rats for clothing. They would sew a bunch of them together and wear rats. They'd put meat under their saddles to soften the meat as they rode. There's some bad dudes. And the Roman emperor's like, I know who's going to go talk to Attila the Hun, my boy Leo. 
So he sends Leo, and Leo's like, hey, could you not kill us all? And he's like, okay, I won't kill you all. And he helps save the people, okay? He's the bishop of Rome. So now not only is Rome important, Leo's important. But not only that, he does it a second time, okay? He does it a second time. In 455, Gesseric, king of the Vandals, entered Rome, and it was Leo who pleaded with them to have mercy, okay? So here's what happened. Gesseric's this king of the Vandals. They're like kind of these Gothic people that are sacking Rome. And Leo goes up and meets him, and, and Gesseric's on horseback. And he says, please spare the people. And Gesseric turns his horse and spurs it and starts riding off and yells back, 14 days looting. And so for 14 days, the vandals looted Rome, but they didn't burn the city to the ground and they didn't massacre people. So Leo had saved Rome twice. Gesseric, Attila the Hun. Leo's the man, okay? And Leo takes on this title. Listen to this title. Pontifex Maximus, highest priest. Highest priest. Rome's important. Council of Constantinople says Rome's important. People start linking the idea of Peter being the rock to Rome. And now all of a sudden you have Leo, which is like the Jason Bourne of the 400s, protecting people with his wisdom and acumen and theology. And so he takes on the title highest priest, Pontifex Maximus. By the way, if you follow the Pope on Twitter today, anybody know his Twitter handle? At Pontifex, okay? That's his Twitter handle, Pontifex, okay? Priest priest. Number seven, who is the first pope in church history? It's a guy named Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great. He was pope from 590 to 604 AD. He's considered to be the first pope. Now, here's what you need to know about Gregory. He was actually a pretty great guy. He was really pious. He didn't want to be pope. They said, we want you to be the bishop of Rome, which we realize is this really big position. And he said, no way. And he ran away, and they had to hunt him down with dogs and make him pope, okay? He did not want to be the Pope, but uh, he was made the Pope. He took an excellent title, Servus Savorum Dei, the servant of the servants of God. Isn't that a great title? The servant of the servants of God, okay? One of the big things he did is promote educational reform. He promoted having an educated clergy. He said this, no one claims to be able to teach an art until first having learned it through careful study. With what incredible boldness, then, do the unlearned and unskillful stand ready to assume pastoral authority, forgetting that the care of souls is the art of arts? For it is clear that the ills of the mind are more hidden than the ills of the bowels, and yet quite often those who have no knowledge of whatever of spiritual disciplines dare to declare themselves physicians of the heart, while those who do not know the use of drugs would never dare to call themselves physicians of the flesh. He's basically saying if you wouldn't go to a doctor to treat your body that doesn't know what they're doing, don't go to a pastor to treat your soul that doesn't know what they're doing. Eventually, after Gregory, the Pope will become the most powerful person in the world after Jesus, okay? The most powerful person in the world. The Pope in the Middle Ages has so much authority, he could do what was called an interdiction, which is where he was excommunicating your entire country. Some, some people made me mad in France. France, you're damned, right? He would forbid the priest from serving the Mass and doing these things that Roman Catholics believe you have to do to be saved, and so the people, he was in a sense sentencing the people to hell. You excommunicate individuals in church discipline, but the Pope would excommunicate countries to get them to do what he wanted. How powerful was he? Let me give you one great story, okay? Pope Gregory VII, this was in 1077, uh, he had excommunicated the Holy Roman Emperor, a guy named Henry IV, okay? So pretend that you're the Pope, and you excommunicate the Holy Roman Emperor, the guy who's in charge of the Holy Roman Empire, okay? The Pope made the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV, 
wait outside barefoot in the snow for three days at a place called Canasa before he invited him in and removed the excommunication. That's power, okay? I'm a big important businessman and I'm a CEO in my company. You don't get Roman emperors to stand in the snow barefoot and you don't send countries to hell, okay? The Pope is powerful. Pope Innocent III said this, the successor of Peter is the vicar of Christ. What is a vicar? Someone who stands in the place of another. Think about what he's saying. He's saying the representative of Christ on earth is the Pope. This is one of the reasons why the reformers call the Pope the Antichrist. The successor of Peter is the vicar of Christ. He has been established as the mediator between God and man, below God but beyond man, less than God but more than man, who shall judge all and be judged by no one. Pope Boniface VIII. We declare, we define, we proclaim that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff, the Roman priest, i.e. the Pope. There you go. Church government, Roman Catholicism, the Pope, all these kind of interesting things. Jeffrey, come on up here with your questions and let's do a little Q&A. All right. Um, got a few questions here. The first one, you kind of answered, but just uh, by way of recap. So uh, the question was, how would you categorize churches with campuses? And so you answered this a little bit when you talked about uh, multi-site. Uh, I think I would say that depending upon the way that the individual church kind of aligns itself, it could be a little bit more Presbyterian, it could be a little bit more uh, Episcopalian, uh, depending on if they have kind of more of a single figurehead sort of pastor or they have groups of pastors who are over uh, multiple campuses or whatever uh, it might be. Uh, typically in those you would have different titles that kind of attach to uh, the, uh, the title of pastor. And so you have lead pastors, you have uh, central pastors, you have campus pastors, whatever it might be. Uh, you'll notice we don't really have that here. I don't have anything in front of my title, pastor. Uh, Zach has the, the title groups only because that designates kind of his function. But there's no functional distinction between, or there's no uh, distinction between Zach and I in regards to authority or between Steve and I in, in regards to authority or Dave and I or whatever it, uh, it might be. There is no quote-unquote lead pastor. There's no elder who is more an elder than other elders. There's no overseer who's more an overseer. I, I see a little bit more than the other elders, anything like that. So we want to kind of avoid that terminology here. I can't think of a single really good qualifier like central pastor or lead pastor or campus pastor, whatever it might be, that might be uh, helpful. So any other thoughts? How would you can't categorize churches with, uh, with multiple campuses? Yeah, so first of all, I don't think campus, churches with multiple campuses are in sin. I, I, don't, I think the Bible gives us a lot of freedom when it comes to church government. We're given some examples in the New Testament, but you don't have a lot of explicit commands with church government like you do in other areas. So I don't think that they're in sin. The question is, is it most faithful? And I think that sometimes it can be, maybe if you do it a particular way, but most of the time it's done, people kind of get left out on the fringes, and one pastor is just kind of streamed into other ones, so they don't really have teaching pastors at their local church that the people really know and are really shepherding the people. But I'm fine with that. I just would want them to own that they're a type of church government that one, has never been done in church history, but two, just say you're Presbyterian or say you're Episcopalian. Just own what you are. Don't try to hide it. That's my only kind of uh, frustration with it. So. Uh, you mentioned that it's, uh, it's not helpful for a pastor to serve over multiple congregations. Would you say that there is a time where there might be an exception. Is it always wrong for a pastor to serve uh, multiple churches? So I, I would say it's, I, I don't think it's ever ideal, but there might be times where it is a sort of a temporary stopgap. So for, for example, uh, my uh, first time in uh, Romania, 
was riding around with this little pastor, and he would go and he'd preach in a church, and, uh, and then he would literally hitchhike to the next town. And so he never knew if he was going to get a ride or not. He would just start walking, and sometimes he would get a ride, and sometimes he wouldn't. And so sometimes the, the next church service would start in 10 minutes, and sometimes it would start in three hours. It just kind of depended uh, upon uh, whenever he could uh, get a ride. Now, his goal in doing that was he said, I want to go to this church, and I want to raise up uh, elders. In, in a sense, what he's doing is he's trying to work himself out of a job. I think that's a faithful way to discharge it in light of the fact that uh, Romania was just coming out of communism. Uh, a lot of the guys there weren't as educated, whatever it might be. And, uh, and so, um, so I think that might be a temporary thing, but it's not an ideal situation. And uh, other thoughts on that? No, I, yeah, I totally agree. Again, what, what I'm trying to give you, what we're trying to give you in church government is what we think is best. The opposite of best is not sin. Right? There's, there's a big gap in between those two of less faithful, more faithful, these kind of things. So just because we're going to promote one thing really strongly doesn't mean that the other ones are sin, bad, God doesn't use them, any of those kind of things, especially on an area like church uh, government where I think there's a lot of flexibility. So. Um, is a location or is a church that conducts multiple services either on the same day or on multiple days, is that a single church? Or is that uh, an example of multiple churches? How would you answer that? I think it depends how you define church. So when we first started ecclesiology, I gave you 14 different ways the word church is used. And so that's, that's part of the reason why there's so much debate is people don't stop and distinguish, what do I mean by church? When I say the word church, do I mean assembly? Do I mean Christians? When I say Christ died for the church, I don't just mean he died for Parkway. I mean he died for Christians, right? Uh, do I mean church leadership, right? When we say, hey, if you have trouble with your marriage, come talk to the church. I don't mean get up on stage on Sunday and be like, my marriage is on fire. What I mean is you come talk to church leadership or whatever it might be. So it depends on how the word uh, church is used. Um, I think that the most two common ways that the word church is used is this. So I'll give you how it's usually used in the New Testament. It either means all Christians, okay, church just means Christians, or it, or it means individual assembly, okay? The problem when you say that we are one church in multiple locations, you know who else says that? The Roman Catholic Church. We're one church in multiple locations, we have multiple leaders in the same teaching and same doctrine over all the church, yet we would say those are different assemblies, those are different ecclesiae, and so it just depends on what you mean. Uh, I think in one sense, they're Christians, so they're a church, but in another, they're individual assemblies. If I meet one time a week with certain people and certain leaders, and I never see other Christians, and I never hear leadership from those other churches or whatever, we're individual churches. We're individual churches. So. Yeah, so I, I think on this you have, um, on one end of the spectrum, you have a guy like Mark Dever, who uh, is the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and uh, started Nine Marks, uh, which is a great organization. Uh, I love what he teaches in general on ecclesiology. He has a very strong stance that is, if a church has multiple services, if a church meets in multiple locations, that is multiple churches, uh, bar none. There are no exceptions for him uh, whatsoever. On the other, the other end of the spectrum, you have people who say, well, it doesn't really matter. So we can have six services or eight services. There's, there are, quote, unquote, churches that have campuses that are in multiple states. And I'm not talking just like the four corners sort of thing where they're within a couple of miles of each other. I mean, there are churches that have a campus here in Dallas and a campus in Miami. Now, in what sense are those actually the same church? So that would be a distortion. And so somewhere in the middle, I think, is where Parkway would land. There is a priority to only having one gathering. That's what the word church means is gathering or assembly or whatever it might be. Uh, in most of the uses in Scripture. And so there's a priority to having that one gathering. The churches, uh, the elders have said, we will never do campuses here. 
The elders have said, we're not going to go to three or four or five services on the weekend, some on Saturday, some on Sunday, whatever it might be. But there could be a time where we have two services and use that second service to kind of funnel people towards church planning. So we send out 100 of our people or something like that. And uh, so again, we kind of find ourselves a little bit uh, in the middle on that conversation. Uh, next question. This is probably the, uh, the last one. We'll tackle it a little bit next, uh, next week. But uh, what is the best pastor to congregate ratio? One to, the formula? one to one is the best. The best pastor to congregate ratio is one to one. Have a pastor for every person. You're going to get excellent care if you do it that way. Uh, there, there's not. I mean, so, so here's what you, you need to think with church size, okay? So I think we have a tendency sometimes to think mega churches are bad or evil or sinful or little churches are bad or divisive or good or whatever. Here's the appropriate ratio. Your church can be as large as it wants to be as long as people are adequately being discipled. That's the rule, okay? So there's not a number. It's as long as people are adequately being discipled. If you have a bunch of people and not very many pastors so the people aren't being discipled, that's not faithful, okay? Barna says it's uh, one pastor for every hundred people. But that's just kind of a random statistic. Uh, but I think the, the question is not so much a number. It's when you look at your congregation, are you saying that people are generally getting pastoral care? Are they able to chat with their pastors? Are they able to get lunch every now and again with the pastor? Are they hearing the preaching of the word? Are they moving towards some type of community, whether it's a community group here or some type of informal Christian community? I think those are more the things to look at. Yeah, I, th I think the best uh, ratio is whatever ratio best allows you to make disciples. And so that depends on the individual congregation, how discipled your people already are. Uh, and so someone who is already fairly mature, uh, fairly sanctified, uh, fairly learned when it comes to doctrine and those kinds of things is probably going to need a little less uh, just daily care. And, uh, and so you could probably have more of those. Um, whereas if you have a congregation that is really, really immature, you're probably going to need a smaller congregation. It also depends on the individual elders. And, uh, and so how many of those are vocational versus how many of those uh, are having to work outside. And, uh, and so the more that you're working outside, the more that you're going to uh, have other responsibilities that are infringe upon life. And then you have a guy like, so, so Dave Young, he retired fairly early. Uh, his kids are all grown and out of the house, and, uh, and so he has a lot more time to be able to spend than, uh, than some other elders, uh, because that's kind of his job now, uh, even though he doesn't get paid for it, he should. But um, yeah, so I think it depends on the individual, he gave a thumbs up, uh, think of the individual uh, pastor, the individual congregation, uh, whatever it is that best allows you to, uh, to make disciples. So we have a couple other questions, but for the sake of time we uh, probably should cut off there and uh, go mingle for, for Easter. Zach, you want to pray? Sure. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for sending Christ and for raising him from the dead and for giving us the Spirit that we might, uh, might know you, might be forgiven, might move from being these people that are under your wrath, that are hated, that are enemies of God, uh, and instead that you have adopted us, that you've adopted us and... Uh, called us uh, sons and daughters, and so we thank you for that. And I just ask right now that you'd be with us, that even in this little study of uh, just church government that seems like just kind of a really pedantic thing, uh, that rather it would encourage our hearts to know that Christ loves his church, and he's given his church leadership, and he's given his church guidance. Uh, I pray for wisdom and unity amongst our people, amongst our elders. Uh, I pray if there's in anyone's heart just even a frustration a frustration with other people here at Parkway, a frustration with leadership, any type of divisive frustration, that that would just go away, that that would, uh, that that would just dissolve in their heart. And so we love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.